I will be reading Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Dan Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishkah, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the king, said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you eat, with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time by the set by the king at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. May the Lord have a blessing on the reading of his word. We have a special treat today. David Katz is going to come and bring us the word of God. So David, would you please come? And we want to pause for a word of prayer
Thank you, Lord, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you, Lord, that you provide the word that we all need to know and understand the ways that you have for us. Thank you, Lord, for David and uh, for raising him up. We pray, Lord, that you would anoint him with your ruach, Lord, to proclaim your word to us boldly. And we pray that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to take your word and apply it. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. First of all, I've got to, uh, this has nothing to do with the message, which is pretty typical, I think, to, that I do. But this announcement, you know, I've always, I've always thought of myself as a small guy, little guy. But the fact that Lee is the, like the medium businessman, you said he's the, he was voted the medium-sized businessman, and we're about the same size. So I think I, I feel really, that really made me feel good today that I, <clears throat> I've, I've stepped up from small to, to medium, so that, that alone was just, just set my spirits soaring, so I'm excited. You know, some stuff is small, and I got a few mediums, but now it's official, so it's really, really good, so... Um, for those, uh, just a quick introduction, my name is David Katz, uh, and uh, I'm a, I've been in Colorado a couple years, I'm a, a student over at Denver Seminary here in Littleton, um, which, is just, which is a theological seminary, and I'm in a program there, a master's degree program, a graduate level program, and it's a master of divinity program, and there's a lot of classes that you have to take uh, for this degree program, many, many credits. Um, but one, one particular class that all the, the students over there in this program are required to take is a course in, um, I forget the exact title, but it's a gl global immersion of some kind. The idea is that you pick a particular context, uh, maybe it's a, an international context, some students might go to Guatemala or China, uh, some students pick an, uh, uh, like a Midwestern context where they go to Nebraska or Iowa. Um, uh, some folks go to an Indian, like Native American Indian reservation, and then there's also an urban context, like a downtown urban context. And then all these, all of these contexts that you might choose, you go and you work with a ministry that's working there, and you see what they're doing. And <clears throat> in most of the, the the contexts, other than the urban one, you spend a week or two weeks, like living on the Indian reservation or living on a farm or you know in Guatemala and so forth. So this semester, actually, I'm, I'm taking that, that course, and I chose the urban context uh, mainly because uh, I didn't want to leave home for two weeks. <laughs> that was the main reason. Um, and uh, the ministry that, that is part of that, that, uh, that, the ministry that we're working with this semester is a ministry that works in Denver with homeless folks. Everyone heard of the Denver Rescue Mission? So Denver Rescue Mission is pretty amazing. I didn't know much about it, but they've got several facilities, and uh, they've got one downtown um, that's you know starts with sort of just homeless people off the street, and you can sort of move through their different programs and kind of you know you, people are have drug issues or family issues, any kind of issue really. They can slowly kind of work their way through the different programs and uh, you know, re-enter society hopefully a little better than when, when they came in. So uh, the class meets three times throughout the semester, three weekends. And I, you, some of you may have noticed, maybe you're grieving. I, I've missed a few weekends here. I was gone for two weekends, and that was the reason. Um, that I was out of town. But the first weekend that we met was back uh, in September. And as part of that weekend, what, you, what, the, what the men in the class did is the, all the men in the class went downtown to the Denver Rescue Mission. 
their facility there. It's on Larimer, I think Larimer Street. It's a big corn, big brick building. If you've never seen it, it's, it's right in the heart of the city, and it's got a big cross, and it says, Jesus saves, flashing neon sign. It's a, it's a big building down there. But we had to spend the night inside the facility. The man, that was the, the Friday evening. So um, prior to that, prior to going down there, um, we had a little sketch of the weekend, what we would be doing more or less. And then we were also told to bring, bring a bag with us with a change of clothes in it, just something that you might take to like a friend's house if you spent the night. So that was about, that was about it. And we went down there Friday night and um, across the street from the facility is kind of a big open plaza and there's lots of people milling around in there, lots of drug activity, lots of alcohol, lots of, you know, you name it's going on in there. So our classmates were just sort of, you know, mingling amongst the people and interacting to, you know, whatever we can, you know, just observing all the, the sights and the, the sounds and the smells, you can imagine, of, again, the drugs and people that, uh, you know, probably haven't had baths for a while. So we're doing all that and just kind of a relaxed atmosphere. And then a little bit before 6 o'clock, it was time to go into the building for the evening's activity. So we, we kind of go from this sort of disorganized walking around to we, uh, we're, we're, we're told to line up single file, and we start walking into the building, kind of on the sidewalk, and we're walking into the building. It's a big, long line, and there's staff members sort of flanking us on either side. And, and up until that point, I was kind of fine. I mean, we were just having a good time. But when we're sort of walking in single file like that, all of a sudden, the, the fear of the unknown kind of gripped me a bit because I realized I didn't really know exactly what was going to happen. I'd never been in the building. I didn't know what was going to be expected of me. I didn't know exactly the ins and outs and how to comport myself and so forth. And so I just a little bit, that realization has hit me. And sort of the rest of the, the, rest of the time I was there, I was just a little bit uneasy. I was a little bit, you know, off balance and not, you know, not really sure what, what to do and where to go and that kind of stuff. And um, it sort of started when we went into the building there was a chapel service. They have a voluntary chapel service that they do before, before dinner. And so we're in there, and I just sort of, you know, I, I wasn't with my classmates. I was just sitting down amongst the, the general population of folks there. And there's a, a television screen, like a big projector, you know, a big projector projecting the, uh, the, the nightly news, which is a whole story in itself, kind of ironic in that environment, watching the news and these commercials. It kind of gives you a whole, you know, you're seeing these folks here who, have just come off the street, and we're, we're learning about, you know, how to get longer lashes and, you know, and, 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 and yogurt that will do these wonderful things for us. And it's a, that's a sort of a sidebar, but it's kind of ridiculous. But um, anyways, the, t- the news is playing, and uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden the, 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 the news feed gets cut off, and the screen goes up into the, the ceiling. And a couple of the guys around me start, start shouting, hey, you get 10 more minutes. Turn it back on. 10 more minutes, you know, and, uh, and I'm... You know, at that time, I didn't realize I was a medium-sized guy. I was still a small guy, so I was a little, I was squirming in my seat a little bit, not sure, is this, you know, is this, uh, do they get 10 more minutes? I don't know. You know, is this normal? Is this, is this going to be a squabble? Am I going to get, you know, worse yet? Am I going to get caught up in this kind of thing, you know? So, uh, again, just a little unsure what's going on, and it turns out they, they got a few more minutes and nothing happened. But, again, I just didn't know, the unknown, right? I just didn't know what was going on. And uh, after the service, we go downstairs to, uh, to eat, and I'm just sort of you know, following along. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm sort of following people downstairs, and I figure out, okay, this, I think this is dinner time because there's, I smell food, and I was given a set of silverware, and, and so figured that part out. But then there's some trays of food there, and I don't, I, I don't know, are they, you know, am I just supposed to take one? Are they different? You know, is there, is there a choice you know, here? Uh, 
what do I do? You know, I, I wasn't sure, but I, I saw, people, saw people taking them, so I just went ahead and grabbed one and sat down. But again, still, you know, still just a little bit, you know, I wasn't, hey, everybody, how you doing? What's going on? Good to see you. You know, I just sort of sat down trying to mind my own business. How much time do I have to finish my meal? I didn't know. Uh, do I dare not finish my meal? You know, what if I didn't like what was there? What if, you know, uh, do I ask for seconds, you know? I wanted coffee, but it was, there was a coffee mug, but it had tea, cold tea in it. But I didn't, I was like, oh, okay. I was hoping for coffee. But I just finished it, went upstairs, uh, and uh, the, the room that we were sleeping in that night, went up to the room we were sleeping in. It's a big room. I would say it's at least twice the size of this room, maybe almost like four of these rooms if you sort of put them in a grid possibly. And it's a big open area, and there's uh, 100, 100 bunk beds roughly. So you've got 200 men sleeping in there. And there's, you know, open restrooms, and you know, this is not the Hilton. This is like, you know, when you're using the restroom, hi, how you doing? You know, it's like you know, there's no, no privacy. The, the, uh, the head of the program guy there said, you know, this is a facility. They, re- they redid the facility, and it's, it's clean, and it's safe, but it's not comfortable. They don't want it to be comfortable. So imagine in your mind what not comfortable would be in that situation. So I go, I see that all the mattresses are just these kind of blue plastic mattresses. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, I need to get some bedding. I see there's linen, so I go to get my linen, and the gentleman hands me a towel, like a gym towel. Okay. <laughs> uh, how about the bedding, you know? And he says, well, you need to take a shower first. I didn't take offense to that because everybody apparently had to take a shower. Uh, before, that's the rules. You had to take a shower before you, get your be- before you get your linen. Okay. So I got to navigate that thing. There's a, again, there's a couple showers, and this one's full, and people are waiting in line. Uh, but this one's empty. I don't know. Can I, can I go over to that one? I, I kind of did. I, but again, I didn't know if it was right or not. No one's talking to me. No one's saying, hey, welcome to the dead. Let me show you all this stuff, you know. And, and so anyways, I got that taken care of, got my linen, made my bed, and I'm laying up in my, in my bunk there uh, in the evening, and there's a, you know, a cacophony of you know, t- at least two dozen guys that have already nodded off and are snoring. And so you're in there, and the lights are on, and I'm, when do the lights go out? I don't know. When do the lights come on? When do I have to wake up? Uh, what now? Is there anything else? Uh, what if I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Am I allowed to, you know, hop down? Am I going to disturb anybody? Is, is this against the... I don't know. There's the point. I don't really know, and I'm just sort of thrown off by the whole experience a bit. And as I'm laying there, I realize, you know, this is not... Uh, I wasn't there involuntarily. This wasn't like, like jail necessarily. But um, it had a very strong institutional feel to it. I would imagine that there's some similarities there uh, with what a jail or a prison might feel like. And uh, I thought, you know, here it was. I, I had signed up for this weekend, okay? I knew, I knew the weekend it was taking place. I knew a general outline of the weekend. Uh, and more importantly, I, I knew that tomo- the next day, Saturday at 4 o'clock, I was going to be home with my wife and my kids. But what if, what if it hadn't been that way? You know, what if, what if I, on Friday afternoon I had been home, <clears throat> just sitting in my house, and someone had come in and taken me away from my family, forcibly, and just started walking, you know, just started going. Didn't understand what they were saying. I didn't speak their language. Couldn't understand what they were talking about amongst themselves. They sounded different. They looked different. I didn't know, again, didn't know where I was going, didn't know how far I was going to have to go. Didn't know how long I was going to be gone. Didn't know if I'd ever come back. And in a situation like that, if you can imagine, what would you do? What would you be thinking? 
What would you say? What would you be willing to say? Well, that, that scenario, I wanted to kind of give you that scenario because that's kind of the scenario that we find ourselves here in the book of Daniel, what we just heard, heard read today. Sort of the background situation, very similar to that. This is, this is the exile. And um, the historical background for this, if, if you read in the book of Kings, you have First and Second Kings, all these stories about the, the, the different ki- the kingdoms, the divided kingdom, the northern and the southern kingdom, and you've got a, a good king and a bad king and a really good king and then a not so really good king and a really bad king. You get all this ebb and flow of different kings that you read about in that book. In the background, we read in, in the book of Second Kings, in the 21st chapter, we read about um, one of these really, really like under the floor bad kings named Manasseh. And Manasseh, you know, you, you can read there in Second Kings, kind of like 19 through 21 and, and beyond in that section. He does some really, really bad stuff. And so much so that the, that the Lord says he just had enough. And he said, I'm just going to, I've got to get these people out of my sight. I'm gonna, this is the southern king of Judah. He said, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem out of my sight. I gotta, for the things that Manasseh has done, I'm going to do this. And again, this is the background for the story. He says, if you can imagine, like someone has a plate of food. I'm going to take him like someone has a plate of food. And I'm going to take him, I'm just going to wipe the food off. And I'm going to put the plate upside down. That's what I'm going to do for what Manasseh has done. And he said, when people hear about what I've done, when they just hear about the things I've done because of the sins of what Manasseh has done, their ears are going to tingle upon hearing this. So that's the setting for Daniel. It's not a little innocuous uh, stroll through the park. This is what's going on here. Very, very, serious, very serious situation. And as Sharon read now, she said she read 21 verses. That took a while. I figure I'm going to spend about 5-10 minutes on each verse. We'll go verse by verse. Okay. So maybe... 3 o'clock, I think. Probably, probably done by that. So. Not really. You've heard it, and I'll summarize a little bit here and there. But um, like she said, in the, in the beginning here, that, that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and, and besieged it. And he took, you know, he beat, you know, beat Jehoiakim, took Jehoiakim, and he took all the, the stuff that was in the treasury of God. And he took it back to, to Babylon. Um, in some of your translations, I share it may say Shinar, which is just a, an ancient name for Babylon. But he took the things from, from there and from God, from the God we know now, and took them back to Babylon. He also looked amongst the people. He took everybody you know, that, was, uh, that was either from, uh, from royalty or nobility. Well, not everybody. He kind of cherry-picked amongst the people that were from royal families or, or nobility families. And he took the, uh, the best-looking ones, the smartest ones, Probably would have, like, like James, for instance, you know, young, good-looking, smart, you know, we definitely would have been taken, you know. I don't think I'd have been taken. Maybe Floyd, whoever Floyd, I don't know Floyd. But uh, um, he took these, the young, smartest, best-looking guys with him, and his intention was, I'm going to take these people, and I'm going to, and they were, we, you know, these were boys. We read later on in the Hebrew, they referred to as Yeladim, which, you know, we talk about Yeladim, they're just, they're kids. I don't know the exact age, probably the early teens, you know, young, young guys, in, in all seriousness, probably, you know, like the the young guys you saw up here in our Torah service today, young, sharp, intelligent, good-looking guys. And he took them, and he said, look, I'm going to, you know, the idea was I'm going to take them, and I'm going to mold them into becoming, you know, leverage their abilities for use in my kingdom. And that, that's what he was, that's what he was going to do. So of those, we, we read about these four, these four uh, boys that were taken, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And uh, I want to stop for a minute to see, you know, what do, what do we know about, about these guys, these boys. Um, we know a few things about them. Uh, first of all, we know that they were from 
you know, good families, royal or, or nobility, right? We know they were good-looking. Again, just look at Floyd, most likely, just like that. Look just like that. Um, they were good. They were very smart, smartest of the smart, you know, the best and brightest. And, and more importantly, we also know their names. And names are very important. Names are not uh, just randomly given, especially in, amongst Hebrew culture and in, 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 the, in the Hebrew scriptures. Names are very significant. We don't just say, well, I'm going to name him Billy Bob Jr. because I'm, you know, I'm Billy Bob and might as well make him Jr. and, and uh, something like that. Or you know, we don't just name him uh, yellow because it's my favorite color or something like that. I mean, it's very important what, what children are named. Names say something about uh, the circumstances surrounding their birth, maybe. They might have to do with uh, hopes and aspirations that, that they have for somebody. You know, we're going to name him this because we want him to be this and so forth. So names are very important. And no, so based on these, these boys' names, uh, we know they're probably from godly families, had godly parents, and uh, their names uh, mean something. Uh, Daniel means uh, God, is, God is my judge. Um, Hananiah means the Lord is gracious, compassionate. Mishael means who is what God is. Basically, you know, what is their, what is their comparable to God? Who is what God is? And then you've got uh, Azariah, which means the Lord, the Lord helps. And we see right away here that their names are changed. They get their names changed. Sharon read, I mean, uh, Daniel became Belteshazzar, and then the other three we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Most of us are familiar with those names more than their Hebrew names. Um, but what's the deal with that? Why did they change their names? You know, is it, is it just, uh, you know, there's some people that are taking Hebrew and uh, maybe people who are studying Hebrew in here and those names and words are hard to pronounce. I don't want to call anyone out, Sharon Bullard. I mean, but uh, Sharon, they're difficult to pronounce, aren't they? Hebrew hard to pronounce here and there? Yeah, right. Some of the names. So is it just a matter of that? Like, you know, when, you're, when your computer goes out or your router goes out and you call customer service. Anyone ever done that before? And you get the, you get the, hello, thank you for calling Cisco Systems. I may help you, please. And. You see, say, uh, excuse me, what is your name? Oh, sorry, sir, my name is Bob. <laughs> no. Is it really Bob? No. It's, uh, and I, my wife's Indians, by the way. I can make that joke, so be careful. Be careful. Pick your jokes uh, wisely. But uh, No, it's some big, long name, and we can't say it, so we just say Bob, right? Is that what's going on here? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, these names all refer to, you know, to, to the Lord. And, and when, you, when you think about battle back at this time, battle was not just a matter of, I beat, you know, I beat you, okay, great. You know, and I take all your stuff. It's more of a complete in total uh, defeat. I beat you, not only do I beat you, my God beats you. And my dad can whip your dad. Oh, yeah, my dad can whip your dad, you know, that kind of thing. This is like a total, complete victory. I've beaten you, I've beaten your gods, you know, their names, just so you know, that the names here, if you notice the four names, the, the El part of the name, like Daniel and Mishael, El is from Elo, short for Elohim, it's referring to God, and the, the Ab, Azariah, Hananiah, Yah is short for the, holy, the, the sacred name of God that we say Adonai, but it means Lord, like my daughter is Leviyah, so it's joined to the Lord. So these all refer to God, and, and what, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, hey, no God anymore, I've beaten you, my God's beaten you. And, uh, f- you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. Forget where you've come from. Forget, you know, forget where you've been. You're going to be Babylonians now. So it's, it's, it's just a, it's part of the whole, the whole idea of, of this, this defeat. And just to pause here for a moment, I mean, is this unusual? Is this something that, I mean, is this not something that happens to believers even nowadays? 
either in big sweeping, you know, big events, or even just incrementally, does the, does the world or other things that try to pull us away and say, hey, forget, forget God, forget the Lord, forget where you've been, forget, you know, that's old-fashioned. That stuff doesn't really matter anymore. You know, you're, you're part of the world now. You're part of the, whatever it is now, right? So there's nothing unique here. But this is, this is what's going on. In verse 8, we get to verse 8 here. And this is kind of what I feel is the, the, obviously the big tension of the story, and most of us probably are familiar with this portion of the story, where, where these four, four boys decide that they, they ask to be excused from the, the royal rations. Part of their training, they were getting you know, knowledge uh, of literature and history and all this kind of stuff, but also they were given, they were given uh, royal rations and the royal wine, and, and they asked to be excused from that and, and eat something else. And it's interesting because up until this, up until this point, you know, we don't read of, uh, I mean, again, the, the distance, for example, f- between Jer- Jerusalem and where they were to Babylon is roughly like between five and 600 miles. And uh, when you think about the, the distances that we travel nowadays and the speeds at which we travel and where we can be in sort of relative time, imagine from where you're sitting right now, where I'm standing, the most remotest part of the world possible. You know, relatively speaking, it might as well have been that far away, five or 600 miles. But, you know, we don't see where they, they took a, made a break for it or ran or, you know, even their name changes. We read later on in the book of Daniel when he's uh, established in the kingdom and the king will, will call for him, you know, Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar. You don't see where Daniel says, excuse me, I'm sorry, you know, my name is Daniel. Please, you get it right, you know. No, we don't see any of that kind of resistance. But there's something about the food here. Most likely this food was, was food that was used in temple worship, Babylonian temple worship, sacrifice to gods or their idols or... Um, uh, certainly not kosher by any stretch of the imagination, and it just was it was over the line it had crossed the line for for what they were were willing to to do and felt that they could not honor god with with uh with eating that food and you know a lot of people have have sort of camped on this part of scripture and sort of held it up and said, "Hey, you know what this is the example this is what we need to do. we need to be like Daniel we need to Stand out in a world against oppression and so forth, and you know be like Daniel, be like these guys, and we need to make sure our kids are like them and we need to make sure our youth are raised up to be the kind of people that will stand up in the you know when when things are trying to pull them away from god and um <clears throat> i don't i don't disagree with that sentiment or that desire by any stretch of the imagination but i think it's a bit too simplistic to say that when we think about the circumstances and the situation and what was going on and you know i think beyond that is what were they basing their decision on to make them, you know, what, what would enable uh, four teenagers who were pulled from their families, ripped from their families, marched half a world away? What would enable them in, just to muster up the courage to do such a thing? And I think, I think the key for us lies back in verse 2. And in verse 2 is, is the, the first of of three things I really want to look at in this chapter today and just, just highlight uh, to you. Um, it's the first of three, and if you've been here for any length of time or ever you know, looked at Bible interpretation or, or, or what have you, you know, as Rabbi Chaim often says, you know, when something's mentioned three times, it's like the, hello, wake up, this is, this is important. You know? So right here in verse 2 is the first of, of three, three mentions that I want to mention to you. And if you go back there and... Uh, Maybe your translations might be different. I'll just read from mine. This is the 
the New Revised Standard Version. It says that the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, his being Nebuchadnezzar. And the Hebrew behind that actually says more, I think, Sharon, was that NIV you read from? Yeah. So it says gave. It uses the word gave. It says that God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It's very active there. God gave him into his hand. And you see almost the identical kind of, uh, identical saying, really, in the book of Job. If you read Job, the first chapter of Job, um, when God and Satan are talking, and then ultimately God, you know, it says that Job and everything he had was given into the, God gave Job and everything he had into the hand of Satan. Same idea. And what, you know, what, what do we know about that story? If you're, if you're familiar with that story, we know that uh, Job experienced quite a change in his life right away. Big change of circumstances and situations and surroundings. A lot of heartache. But what do, what do we also know about, about that story? You know, that, that God preserved Job. God was, certainly his hand was never removed from this situation. He preserved him and he ultimately uh, prospered him, restored him. And just like as in that story, we see here at the beginning of Daniel, right from the start, verse 2. I mean, sure, God was meeting out his discipline and his, you know, he had to do it. We read about that. And God was true to his word. He's righteous, he's just, and he did what he needed to do. And Daniel was experiencing a great change in his, in, in his circumstances, in his surroundings. But I think the text shows us right here from the beginning in verse 2 that no matter the circumstances and no matter the surroundings and what's going on, that God still loves his children and that his hand never departs from working in their lives. You know, I don't think this is so much about Daniel and this great decision that Daniel made and be like Daniel but it's about the God that's behind that decision, ultimately. And it's not so much that, oh, God is sovereign and in control. Of course he is. But this speaks more to the very nature and, and character of God. I think maybe two, three weeks ago we were reading, when we were in Exodus, and uh, we read from Exodus 34 in our Torah portion. That's a section of Scripture that we get a little glimpse into the very nature and character of God. Beyond that he is sovereign, we get a glimpse into his character. And what does it say in Exodus 34? It says that, that uh, God is a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, making steadfast love to the thousandth generation. And, and here, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think about this sovereignty. I was thinking about it yesterday. Um, and, and, you know, uh, humor me for a moment. In my house, I'm sovereign, <laughs> meaning I can make things happen a certain way with, with my children specifically, meaning if they're crying or something's going on, okay, you know, we'll put you into the... To the High chair, you know, lock you in there for a moment. You're causing trouble. I'm going to control the situation. You're going into the crib. Uh, not necessarily, though, a father of compassion and mercy all the time, but sovereign, you know. But this is different here. This is a God of compassion and mercy. And we see it here in, in, verse, in verse 9, the second mention, after they asked to be excused, the second thing I want to draw your attention to. My translation says, Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The Hebrew, once again, is almost identical to verse 2. It says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion before the palace master. God gave it. So God gave it. God gave it. Right? You know, Daniel had resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations. The idea there is said that he placed it upon his heart. It was his intention. It's what he wanted to do. It was his intention. But again, this wasn't about some great decision that Daniel made necessarily, but it was about the God that made that intention 
happen. And we see here again in verse 9, this idea that, you know, regardless of what's going on, regardless of the circumstances, that God still loves his children. And his hand is working. His hand never stops working in their lives. And we, we read this today, and most of us are familiar with sort of the, the, the outcome of this, this very tenuous moment in the story um, that, uh, you know, that, that they, they were able to eat the vegetables and they were, they were actually healthier than everybody else. But it's pretty clear they were betting, you know, betting on a very sure thing, a very sure, sure knowledge that, that, that they knew the nature of God. Not just that God's in control, but the nature of God. So they were able to, to eat the, uh, the, the, the vegetables. And hopefully for some of you, I know there's been, you know, there's lots of emphasis in this chapter on the decision. There's lots of emphasis on, hey, we need to eat vegetables. And there's a, you know, have a diet like Daniel and so forth. But I think that's more kind of on the top of what's going on here. I'm not going to encourage you to not eat your vegetables. But I don't think that's what the story is necessarily about. And hopefully you can see that it's, uh, it's not necessarily about um, <coughs> eating vegetables. But they, they, they were able to, to do better than everyone else. And then a- after that, after we see that, the, that they were able to, to eat, eat the vegetables and they did better, we see in verse 17 this third mention. This is the last, the last mention that I want to draw your attention to. After this, this thing, it says, To these four young men, and again, the Hebrew says these are four children, <laughs> these Yeladim, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Again, God gave it. So God was involved with this thing right from the very start. You know, and they could have, I think, you know, it's always difficult when we speculate. I mean, they could have resisted. They could have been bitter. They could have rebelled. Uh, If you think about it, they weren't really, I mean, it really wasn't even their fault, if you will, that they were there. You know, Manasseh was three, four generations before them. You know, they were were sort of reaping something else from someone else, and they could have resisted. They could have rebelled, uh, but they didn't. And we see that, we see that uh, as we finish the chapter out, the, the, the Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. When you do the math and everything, it's probably 70, 80-year career, most likely. I mean, a long, a long career. Uh, and his stock literally soared in, in, in Babylon amidst less-than-ideal circumstances. Um, because hopefully, as you've seen here, at least three times, we, we get the, the understanding that no matter the circumstances, right, no matter the place, no matter the time, that God loves his children. And his hand is working. His hand never departs from working in their lives. I, um, in the fourth grade, at least where I, where I grew up in elementary school, the fourth grade was the, the first uh, year, the first grade that you could play an instrument, musical instrument. That was like when it, when it kind of started, uh, in school at least. And so, Kind of like when, when I was 15, or maybe when you were 15, and you're counting down the days, you know, to when you're going to be 16 and telling your dad, I'm going to drive on this day. I'm going to get my license this day, and I'm going to drive. So I, I was kind of doing that in advance in the third grade, counting down to the fourth grade to when I was going to get to play an instrument. I had already decided I was going to play the, uh, the alto saxophone. So I had it all figured out. And uh, during the summer, between my third and fourth grade years, I was doing uh, probably what any good responsible nine or ten-year-old kid would do when his parents aren't really around. I was just rummaging through the closets, snooping around there a little bit. So I was rummaging through the closets, and I uh, came across um, this black, like, plastic case, you know. And I op- opened it up. I looked inside, and inside there was, in, still in the plastic, it looked brand new. 
Bundy two alto saxophone. So I was excited. And uh, sometime later, I don't recall when, but before, during the summer there, I did something, uh, probably that a responsible nine or ten-year-old kid would do. I don't remember what it was, but I got in big trouble for it. And, uh, and I got punished. My parents punished me, and my dad said, you're not going to play saxophone next year. And that was, that was what I, that, oh, I thought, about, that's how I felt. Uh, and I went, I remember going sh- shortly after that, looking through the closet again later on, you know, a couple days, a week later or something, and I, I looked everywhere, and I just, the case wasn't there. And I was, I was crushed. And I went to school, and, uh, you know, went to school, and sometime early on in the year, my dad actually drove me to school one day, and, you know, back, I don't have to tell most of you in the room here, but, you know, a couple decades ago, it was safe to walk to school. I usually walked to school. But uh, that day I didn't for some reason. He drove me. And he pulled up in front of the school, a little circular driveway there, and all the kids were kind of flooding into the school. And I went to say goodbye to him. I mean, I still picture it in my head here. I, I looked at him, and he was in the driver's seat, and he, he was looking past me. He was looking out the window. And, and he just said, he said, look at all those kids with their instruments. And he just started crying. I mean, like, face contorted, weeping, crying. And, and uh, I remember immediately, I just I felt very awkward. You know, I felt awkward for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, it was my dad, this hulking figure. And now a lot of you saw him last week. He's five foot five, 130 pounds. I'm the biggest one in my family. Uh, <laughs> but I'm a medium-sized person. So we know that. Um, but, you know, he was huge in my eyes. And there he was crying. And he had his big, you know, corduroy jacket on with big fleece collar, you know, and these kind of Air Force sunglasses he used to wear, and he's just crying. And I, was, I understood what he, you know, I understood why, he, I mean, what was making him cry, but I didn't understand why. I thought, well, yeah, I see, you see the kids, and I don't have my instrument, but, I mean, I'm being punished. I'm in trouble. You're care, you know, you, this is what you said. I'm being disciplined. Why, why are you crying? That's what I was thinking, but I didn't, I didn't say anything. I just got out of the car and, and went into school and I remember, you know, shortly after that, again, a week, two weeks, I don't remember exactly how long I was, and, and just fair warning, if you invite me in your car or your house, I mean, I just naturally like to look in things, glove box, new closet, <laughs> that kind of stuff, so, so I was going through the closets again, and uh, I came across uh, a brown case, another, like a brown plastic case, I had never seen it before, I opened it up, and there was a, a saxophone in there. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't the same saxophone. It wasn't in plastic. It was a different one. And I was puzzled because no one played saxophone. I mean, not, not my sister didn't play. And I, no one else played. I didn't, couldn't figure out what that was for. Well, I found out many years later, many, many, many years later, that uh, the first instrument I had seen, the first saxophone I saw was, was a rented one. You could rent, I guess you could rent from music stores back then. And my dad had rented that. And when I got in trouble, he, sure enough, he took it back, took it back to the store, but that when he, was, when he was there, he saw this other saxophone, and he bought it. He actually bought it for me. And, and I think about that, and I bring it up because I think, you know, in the midst of, of my discipline and being in trouble with my dad, uh, he still thought about me. And he, and he bought me a saxophone. It wasn't even a rented one. He bought it for me. And I wonder, you know, if an earthly father, who you know, is not even a believer to this day, uh, would uh, would do such a thing? Think about us. How much more? Our heavenly Father, who is gracious and compassionate, full of mercy, steadfast love, and 
says many times in his word that he will never leave us or forsake us. How much more would, would he do that for us? And I want to just, in closing, ask you a question today to think about. Um, and the question, the question is, what are you going to do when you're in exile? And, that, and what that looks like. Maybe that's going to be when things aren't necessarily going the way you'd want them to go. Maybe they're not necessarily going the way you would expect them to go or hope that they would go. And maybe it has nothing to do with anything you can pinpoint and just, oh, that's a bonehead move I did. And it may have nothing to do with that, not even anything you've done actively. Or maybe it's when, again, when things are slowly trying to pull you away or, or in a big way pull you away from the things that you know about God. And you feel like you're alone and you're in, a, in exile. What are you going to do? Are you going to just kind of go along with it? Kind of path of least resistance? Are you going to become bitter about it? Are you going to rebel against what's going on? Or are you going to act in such a way or, or at least understand that God is with you? God is there. His hand is still working, even in your exiled state. And I'm going I'm to recommend door number three. It's my personal opinion. And I think, you know, door number three for, for a lot of reasons, but hopefully you've seen today, at least in this story of Daniel here, that regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in, regardless of the time and the place, remember that God does still love his children and that his hand never departs from working in their lives, in your life. I invite Rabbi up. stand what David uh, <clears throat> gave us today gives us uh, a lot of uh, room for thought doesn't it we like to think that th the Lord would uh, put us in a bubble where nothing would ever touch us but he doesn't and we struggle with that and um, as David pointed out as the word of God points out he is engaged with us and he gives us favor and wisdom how to navigate through those challenging, difficult times. So, I don't know where this finds you, but I want to just ask that we pause for a minute and um, just have a personal chat with the Lord. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows your circumstances. And... Um, We'll be concluding in just a few moments. Um, but we want to remain in an attitude of worship. Just open our hearts to the Lord. Say, Lord, here I am. You know me. I can't snow you. And um, 
I just want to walk through the path that you have prepared for me in a way that is pleasing to you. Lord God, we, um, we bless your name because you know us intimately. You know us, Lord, when we sit, when we stand. You know each one of us, Lord. You know our circumstances. And uh, we pray, Lord God, that each one of us would endeavor to, to be open-hearted with you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would enlighten us, that you would cause us, Lord God, to see things from your perspective and to worship you in the midst of circumstances, good, bad, and ugly. We pray, Lord God, that in each of those circumstances that you would receive the honor and the glory in our life and that people looking at us, Lord, would be impacted and touched because of your presence and your engagement and how we respond. We ask all this, Lord, in the name of Yeshua. Amen. <laughs>